Hi, it's Rob from Brightspot, and this is episode 125 of the Fundraising Brightspots podcast. So, dear listener, I was reflecting recently that now the show has grown so much since those first few episodes that I tentatively shared in the autumn of 2019, I realised that if you started listening in the last couple of years, there's a really good chance that you've never heard some of our early episodes. And to me, that's a shame, because some of those early topics are still as relevant today as they ever were, and we got some really great feedback about many of them. So I've decided that when I have time, I'm going to share some of these popular episodes from the archive. Today, I'm excited to share one of my favourite episodes, which is with a thoughtful and extraordinarily effective high-value fundraiser named Tony Gaston. This was first published at the beginning of 2020. I hope you like it. Hi there, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 7 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas for how to raise more money, really enjoy their job and make a bigger difference. Now the first thing I wanted to do is tell you how grateful I am for all the comments I've been receiving about the episodes so far. It's so great to hear what you think and to know that you're finding these stories helpful. So thank you to everyone who's found the time to get in touch. And today, if you work in high value fundraising, or you're curious about it, or you manage someone who works in trusts and major gifts, you're gonna find this episode really interesting because today we explore how certain shifts in skill and focus and belief can create a valuable uplift in your major donor income. Clearly, different charities need to choose strategies to suit their own situation. And clearly, some elements of fundraising are an art as much as they are a science. That said, over the years, I've found we can learn a huge amount from studying what steps other people have taken to grow their results, especially if that year-on-year growth is way out of the ordinary. And that's why I was so keen to talk to Tony Gaston, now at Fields of Life and formerly at EMS International. Before he joined in 2013, EMS International had no proactive major donor strategy and so received relatively few large donations from individuals. In 2013, Tony, who was new to fundraising, joined EMS International and to help get their high-value fundraising moving, attended our Major Gifts Mastery Program. That first year, he brought in gifts to the value of £200,000, and each year for the last five years since then, income has grown, to a point where last year the charity received Major Gift income totalling the extraordinary sum of £2 million. In this, the first of two episodes with Tony, he shares examples to bring to life some key lessons he's learned over the last five years, and which he believes have contributed to this success, including how he's learned to step away from hectic day-to-day activities to pause and think more clearly about the most important lucrative opportunities he needs to tackle, and what he feels is the single most important thing to get right when you meet a potential donor, and the crucial psychological shift he's made, which makes him much more confident than he used to be when inviting a supporter to make a large gift. I found this chat with Tony incredibly helpful, not least because throughout the conversation, he offers examples to bring to life the lessons he's learned so far. Hello, Tony. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. How's the weather in Glasgow? Um, as as always, it's it's cold and raining and, and dreek, but um, yep, I'm pretty used to that by now. Okay, and um, just to help tune into the main idea of this particular interview I wanted to do, in a moment I want to get on to in particular your ideas about high value or major gifts fundraising, but just to kind of set the scene a bit, although you and I first met 
about six years ago when you were at Ems International. Two or three months ago, you made a job change and you're now at Fields of Life. Do you want to tell me a bit about the charity you work in now? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, just three months ago, I moved across to an organisation called Fields of Life. Um, they're a Christian international development organisation focusing on education and on water in Uganda, Rwanda. And I'm actually tomorrow flying out to Uganda to see the projects for the first time. So I'm, so I'm really excited. Wow, that's going to be some trip. So how long are you going for? Um, it's not too long a trip for two weeks, but uh, plenty of travel in and around the project. So um, it should be a busy, busy couple of weeks for me. And this time, are you going with donors or are you, you this time you're just going to focus and learn for your own sake? Yeah, it's um, primarily just to learn to meet the team out in East Africa. There is a, a donor coming out for a couple of days who has been uh, a donor for a number of years. So I will have a couple of days with donor, but primarily it's more for my induction and, and really get to, get to know everybody. Gosh, so there must be so much to, to learn still uh, as you're getting your feet under the desk in the new job. But if I may, I'd like to get to the main focus of, of why I wanted to interview you, which was this fabulous, both in terms of the numbers, growth I observed you achieving when you were the major donor fundraiser at EMS International. And just before we ease, ease into that, it was about six years ago you joined there. What kind of organisation is EMS International? And paint a picture of the journey you made from about 2013 up, up until just recently. Okay. Um, well, I guess the first thing to say was when I moved across to EMS International, which is a, another international development organisation working particularly in healthcare, but when I joined that organization in 2013, I had no fundraising experience at all. So I was coming in from really from more of a sales background. I'd worked in, as a sales manager for a couple of years and I'd worked as a recruitment consultant for a short time as well. Um, and so it was really quite a new thing for me. I came in as relationship manager, really probably other ways of describing it might be major donor fundraiser, but there wasn't really anything there at that point. The charity had been there for a long time, actually 175 years, a long time. So there, there was a, a database of people there and there were quite a lot of small gifts coming into the organization, but there wasn't much of a, a focus on any major giving. So coming into that was really exciting for me. It gave me a chance to explore, identify who the people that we want to target might be and really take ownership of it and, and grow it and I've been really blessed and I've been really thankful because over the over the six years that I worked at EMS International we grew income from major gifts quite steadily so in the first year of over 250,000 from standstill and then the second year up to 300,000 and by the time I was leaving we, we just received a, a seven-figure gift and income was almost up to 2 million for that year. The year before that, almost a million. So, you know, it was really quite an exciting trajectory and there wasn't anything particularly magical about any of it. It was just having that focus and having that clarity. And you and I first met very early in that journey when you came onto the Major Gifts Mastery Programme that we do at, at Bright Spot and, and um, uh, my colleague Kim started coaching you then. And I, That's and right appreciated her her wisdom and, and support for a lot of this journey and early on 
I was struck by not just how um, willing to get on and do stuff you are, which is one of the most important qualities I see in a fundraiser, not overthink and not over-theorise, but doing has a great power to it. But also, paradoxically, you tend to pause and, and uh, think about stuff and ask some smart questions. And I see that thoughtfulness may well be one of the the, the qualities. Well, I observed it in you then, and I wonder also if, if that might have been a factor in this steady upward curve, because each donor you met and or each year you went through, you'd be willing to look at things and uh, not always be satisfied, but look at what else can we do. So in a moment, I'd love to explore with you some other things you think to have helped this growth to achieve. But first of all, I wondered what you think about, <laughs> about that compliment I'm paying to you about not only action taking, but also a reflective quality and a, and a thoughtfulness. I wonder if because I came into fundraising cold or if because I came from not a fundraising background, if I was almost a bit of a sponge in that sense and really hungry to figure out what is it that made a good fundraiser. Um, And I remember joining your mastery program back in 2013 and just sucking all that information in, trying to understand what it is that, that set apart the good fundraisers from the not so good ones. And as you say, Kim Van Neerkirk as well, just her coaching me and and really asking questions. What about this? What about that? And I was really keen to hear from people who had been successful with with some of the bigger gifts. But definitely, if there's one thing that stands out to me through listening to what you've been talking about, listening to others, is is that that sense of pausing, that sense of stopping, and um, not being busy all the time. And what I mean by not being busy is not I'm not saying not to work hard, but to work hard doing the right things, not working hard doing the things that maybe need done, but are you know going to just take up the time. So I've always um, been a big picture person anyway. So that's very much looking, okay, so if my target is this, how am I going to get there? That's really what I want to be focusing on. But yes, I guess that sense of that hunger to always learn, to always be someone who can learn and always have that humility and know that you don't have all the answers um and and i know there's still so much more that i i will have to learn so yeah i I guess that that would be what i would say clearly this being willing to pause and calmly see the big picture and work out what ideas that might give us for improvement that's part of it but i i think uh you and i spoke a couple of months ago i just had a quick catch up to, to find out how you were doing and you were saying also across these six years, you've got better at applying that same, let's just pause and think calmly, mm-hmm. that habit to particular donor relationships and opportunities. You told me an example or two of particular big gifts that came about precisely because you were, were able to pause and see the wood for the trees and then take yeah. it into better action. I, I wonder if you could remind me of, of one of those examples. Yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> It has been something that again and again that I keep coming back to. And I remember in 2014, I had this big target ahead of me. Um, you know, we'd started from scratch um, halfway through the year, the year before. And there was this £250,000 target that I'd, I'd given myself um, to, to try and, and achieve. And I thought, how on earth am I going to do this? And we were so busy. There was a Christmas appeal coming out. There was all sorts of things that were happening. And I was just my, my diary was absolutely filled. And I, I just felt like I just need to just stop and 
I need to kind of focus on how am I going to hit this figure? How am I going to get to where I need to be? And I remember because I, I went out for a bike ride and just to clear my head and I was riding up the canal in Glasgow and I remember just thinking to myself, where is the money most likely to come from? And it was obvious it was it's, it's from this individual, this individual that I'd been um, speaking with for a while. Like th- that's where it's most likely to come from. I need to put my time into that. And I remember I, I got off my bike, I picked up my phone and I texted him and I said, would you like to go to Malawi with me? I thought about it. I was thinking, made it just the way I wanted it to be in a press send. And I remember within five minutes, he wrote back saying, absolutely, when can we book our flights? And we went out about a month later and we spent two weeks together looking at the projects. We came back and I then asked him for... Um, I think it was £200,000 over a cup of coffee, which was one of the most scariest things I had ever done at that stage. He then, a couple of weeks later, then came back to me and, and he gave over £100,000. But I, I remember that really clearly just because, A, it was a lot more fun to go on, on the trip to Malawi, but also it was just working a lot smarter. And I could have been way busier doing a lot of other things that would have brought a fraction of the money that that would have brought in. Um, but just having that that time to stop and reflect and think, where where is the most likely place that this money is going to come from? And, and then spend your time figuring out what's the strategy with, with that particular donor or that particular idea. Yes, what a great story and a re- good reminder to all of us. <laughs> Busy as we get doing stuff. And I know that uh, we've mentioned a couple of times, uh, our colleague Kim Van Neerkirk, She's a, a big fan of mindfulness uh, as a, a, a quality anyway and um, a habit and a practice that can increase one's ability to see the wood for the trees, to think more clearly yeah. about what's really important. And I also know that different people I've interviewed over the years have, have different ways of getting better at that, that quality. And I know for Kim, daily meditation is a key element of how she's got so much better at it. But for, for you, is it you know, going for a bike ride is, is it achieves a similar quality? Yeah, I mean, I, I always laugh with Kim because um, maybe I'm not the kind of person that jumps at meditation. But, but I definitely see the value in just that, that time of, of stopping, of, of reflecting, of praying, of meditating, whatever it is that you do. And just having that opportunity to really think big picture and be able to think, even even just to stop worrying about things and and stop um, over analyzing things, there's definitely value in that. And definitely before big major donor meetings or big presentations that I'm giving, I do like to try and have a little pause to calm myself, calm my nerves, um, and you know almost remember that actually this is a two way conversation and that I'm there to listen and I'm there to really find out as much as I can rather than necessarily just talk at somebody so yeah no i found it useful yeah and you probably remember across our six months uh, major gifts mastery program on day two and day three and day four we give everyone a chance to reflect on something that they've they've done differently since last time and by day three usually the most common breakthrough people are talking about that they're really pleased about and they're noticing it's helping their results is that thing that you've just said that the confidence when with a donor or supporter to not feel the need to all do all the talking, but to, to pause and allow and create space 
for the other person to do more talking. It sounds like it should be really easy. But I remember early in my career, when more nervous and less confident, I filled that space. I noticed that the more people deliberately practice some of the habits and techniques for what you do when you're with a donor, the better they get at just being present and allowing the space for the other person to talk. But I wonder if for the listener's point of view, there's um, an example that springs to mind of when you've noticed that helping. Honestly, I would, I would I'd have to agree with you 100% that I think that more than anything else, it's probably the one habit that, that is, is going to be the most influential more than anything else. You know, a really good example is a new person who I had met um, probably 2015, 16. And, and this person have that, that first conversation with. And almost always you get asked, what, what is it you're here for? So I, I tend to try and have a, a, a phrase that I use, you know, which might be something like, well, you know, there are so many things that I'd love to talk to you about. But before I delve in, you know, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about you. And so I just started to ask him about him. And it, it turned out that the charitable trust that, that he was operating from um, gave to a particular type of, of individual. He had a particular heart for accommodation for, for, for people. And as I uncovered that and asked, well, what is it about that? And how did that come about? And, you know, as he began to talk and it was a good, you know, two hour conversation of listening to him, you know, it, it became very crystal clear that there was one project that we had at EMS International that just fitted absolutely perfectly. And so when it came to my time to speak, it was another accommodation project I knew that that was the one to go with. Now, if I'd kind of rewritten that and I'd said, okay, I'm going to come into this meeting totally planned. I knew exactly what I was going to say. Maybe I'd be focusing on a completely different project. But because I focused on the project that after listening to him, understanding what he was interested in, it was an amazing match. And that relationship blossomed and he he was one of our um, biggest major donors in the end. Hi, it's Rob. I wanted to jump in quickly to tell you about our two flagship training programs. That's Major Gifts Mastery, which is the one that Tony did, and the Corporate Partnerships Mastery program. They both start again in early May 2023. These programs help you make serious progress through a combination of masterclasses with me and individual coaching or mentoring support. A key ingredient that makes them effective is that in addition to the techniques we teach, we also put great effort into helping you build your confidence and proactivity to reach out and set up conversations or project visits, or so-called test drives, with potential supporters. We've found that almost everyone who does these programs manages to at least double their results in this crucial area. To give you a sense of how powerful this can be, here is Lily Whitlam, Partnership Development Manager at Great Ormond Street Hospital Children's Charity talking about how it helped her. I had had a session with my mentor and we had a discussion about, you know, what what can I do to really press on those test drives? And it was just a case of chasing, chasing, you know, doing, putting together all that activity in December, knowing that in January it would pay off with these test drives. And once I'd had them, I, yeah, as I said, I had six in total. Um, and one of them has actually led to a million dollar donation from a company which is absolutely unbelievable and something that we didn't think would happen you know but I think it's just a testament to that that motivation that clear focus that I had kind of from the program and that focus activity between December and January and that's something I'll kind of I'll carry with me knowing that if you put in that effort in December 
for January when it's traditionally a quieter month, people don't have much going on. I mean, I had the busiest January of my working career and that was because I had that motivation and that focus. I knew what I was doing and just the energy I felt from it. And again, I'm not going to forget that energy. So I think it's only going to make the work I do next stronger because I've, I know what that feeling was like. And it's something that, yeah, I can celebrate and feel really proud of. To find out more about either Major Gifts Mastery or Corporate Partnerships Mastery, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk forward slash services. For now, let's get back to my conversation with Tony Gaston. It really just came from that, that sense of really genuinely finding out about that person, not as a, oh, I'm going to listen for lessons, listening sake, but genuinely finding out what are, what are you actually passionate about? And is there anything in my organization that matches that? I think somebody once described it to me as a fundraiser, as a matchmaker. But from that point of view, I guess, you know, it's not just as simple as listening. You know, you also have to know your projects inside out because you've got to do the study and, and understand all the different elements of your projects. And if there are different segments of a project that you can then bring into conversation and then you have to have a maybe a, a case study in your head that would match that particular element of a project. So there definitely is a lot of work to go behind the scenes, but I guess it's less planning for that meeting um, and being open to their, you know, what are they passionate about and seeing how can that match. Yeah. Um, so there's several things in there, uh, Tony, thank you. A uh, part of it is just a, a better plan for how you might answer their question where they're trying to get you to do the talking Yes, the phrase that would kind of you can congruently give back to them to help them see the value in opening up to you. And obviously that's one of the key modules we include in our training. But I think the more important thing, which many fundraisers learn at some point in their career, it's just if the listeners can can get better at it even quicker, then that will help. The more important thing, I think, is just to value curiosity in and of itself Mm-hmm. rather than feel, though the pressure at some level is on, rather than feel like you're doing a, a sale or doing a technique on someone, in and of itself to just care and be curious, that's a value which I, I sense you prize more highly than than maybe the Tony of six or seven years ago might have known to. Uh, yeah, 100%. And I, and I think I probably would have been more prone to jump in and tell you about what we do and how it's different from others and and just actually probably the confidence has grown that if you give someone the opportunity to speak they will give you the opportunity back I've never ever and found that they haven't given me the opportunity to speak well before I would have felt like oh no time's running out I, I need to say my bit you know and this person just keeps talking but if you genuinely just don't worry about that and put that to one side and just listen and ask a lot of deep, deep questions. Um, I mean, I remember one example, um, and this was the, the donor who gave a seven-figure gift. And in our organization, it was kind of decided, look, I think us and this donor might go separate ways because we're on a different paths. And I remember saying, okay, let's go and properly listen to him. And I remember just asking him and asking him question after question about why he was interested in a particular area of, of our work or, or of the work that he was doing. And three hours into that conversation, he then asked me about what, what we're doing. Three hours into the conversation. And so it just 
you will get the opportunity, but if you um, really take the time to listen, then you will eventually get your chance to actually speak. And by that stage, you know exactly what you need to say. All of this is, is absolutely wise stuff. And I've observed it work over and over again for the people who, who I've met and who come through our courses. And one of the questions people sometimes ask is, yes, Tony, but what if they they don't want to you know, share more freely? If the listener is is thinking of their donor who, who, who's never given them one hour, let alone three. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is 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 more introverted or shy or private when you're trying to better understand and appreciate their world as, as as the way i phrase it in my book when you're trying to do that first maybe there's no one perfect answer but do do you have any tips for things that have helped for when people are initially less forthcoming i mean undoubtedly some people they just are more private and they are not going to open up and so it's probably it's something that's hard to describe but there is that soft uh, relationships you know skills that most fundraisers have that they just tend to kind of get the hint whenever they need to hurry up or, or whatever so you know obviously you don't just keep asking questions you're, if you're walking into a businessman's uh, office and he's got half an hour and you're just asking him how was your day and we you know what are you interested in he's going to get pretty annoyed pretty quick so I guess it's just reading the room reading their body language reading them and understanding okay when is it appropriate to ask and when is it not I'd say as a rule of thumb, most people do like talking about what they're passionate about. So, yeah, try and speak about what they're passionate about, not what you're passionate about. But also, I guess if if someone's not willing to give you the time to properly talk with them, then the likelihood of them giving you a six-figure gift is probably fairly slim as well. That, that's what I find that I've very rarely received major gifts from anybody who wasn't and so not to be overly anxious about those moments and just to, to keep plugging away at the ones where you can get that um, kind of conversation in because you, there's no point in, in working and working and working at something that they're, they're clearly not that interested. So I guess, I don't know if that's helpful or not. But <laughs> Absolutely, it is. And um, it um, reminds me of another thing when I've interviewed in, you in the past. You said across these years, This is my phrase, actually, but I I hope you'll understand the concept and agree with me on the concept. Across these years, you've got better at noticing the patterns of when someone is likely the kind of person who would absolutely care and and match for for what your charity is doing and or have the ability to want to, to make a difference. In the last couple of years, you've been much better at noticing those signals. Uh, than you were earlier in fact I think you even told me a particular story of a, you know, a colleague coming back from some kind of event networking event and they they mentioned a donor and uh, the lights went on in yeah. your brain that you needed to you couldn't allow yeah. this one to wait to the end of the pile for three weeks time tell me about what you've learned about pattern recognition and decisiveness when when the green light is flashing for you I think that and probably many, many who, who listen to this who are or have been fundraisers for a period of time, you do get a sense for when, oh, that, that looks like we, we need to put time and effort into that because it's, it's, it's really looking like it has the certain characteristics of a, of a gift that maybe you've had in the past. 
it's quite hard to put a finger on it sometimes, but but there is definitely certain things that that really stand out. And and that example that you talk about is is a really good one because so colleagues have been sitting on that lead for a number of months. So I didn't hear about it until a couple of months after. So someone had been in a networking event, they'd spoken with somebody, the charitable trust um, was looking for something around this type of work. When they told me about this, I thought there's something unusual about that. The way they're telling you so much information up front, the fact that they're in a little bit of trouble and they're looking for someone really to, to guide them and, and, and give them that, that sense of um, direction. The fact that they approached you with that information and not that you sought it out. And so I remember saying, I will, I will absolutely take this on. And I, and I phoned the person straight away and they led me, they, they put me a referral into the chairman of the trust and the trust was in Shrewsbury. So if you look at Shrewsbury in the map and Glasgow in the map, it wasn't exactly easy to get to. It took me four hours to get there. I had a half hour meeting and I had four hours back. Um, so it was, it was really, you know, quite a, um, j- just something I had a sense of. And, and uh, my, I may have got the timing slightly wrong, but um, it, it wasn't even just that um, it was a major investment in time and effort and money on your part. It was also you had to jump quite quick. Very quick. Yeah. Um, so I, I within within a week, I had planned that trip. I went down and met that person, then had to put a full proposal together within a month after that, which my programs director was delighted with, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, but um, that, that, that led to half a million pounds. So, you know, it was it was fast to begin with. And, and if we hadn't got in there fast, we would have absolutely missed it. Now, it's not to say that that will always happen, but it's it's just the sense that there are certain things that stand out as you become more experienced, I guess, as a fundraiser that you say, OK, that's that's something I need to um, to move on quickly. Yes. And the, the other thing I'm hearing in that is, is, you know, a philosophy and a belief that our job is not to go and get money to pay for some good our charity to do some good work. Our job is to understand who out there cares and and might have problems to solve in areas similar to ours and to look you know which donor could I be helping today which which trust is trying to solve a problem and I sense part of what made you act so urgently was them requesting help solving a problem yeah rather than oh here's an opportunity for me to get some money yeah is that a fair analysis it it definitely and, and and actually I think that that fundraising gets a bad rap Maybe sometimes for for you know always appearing to just be going out and trying to seek money and and I think that what we have to offer people is you know is so is so much greater um but it's that it's that belief that look you know they want to do something good in the world and I have a solution for that because and um, what we're doing is is exceptional and I guess it comes back to that matchmaking analogy. Um, where you know I'm not trying to sell something to anybody. I, I'm literally just trying to see what are the things that you're wanting to do, and is there anything that we're doing that matches with that? Um, and just having the confidence and the belief that we can add value to that, and we can fulfil some of those passions and those dreams that that, that supporters have. And you know, every single supporter and um, that I work with is is really satisfied and is really often saying it's the most amazing thing I have ever done in my life and these are people who have you know had businesses that they've sold for 20 and 30 million pounds they've 
had families, you know, and you're thinking, how could you be saying that? But they're saying, look, um, this is one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done because I'm helping, you know, 50,000 poor and vulnerable people. And thank you for giving me the opportunity. So it's, it's a completely different mind shift. So I hope you found the first half of this chat with Tony interesting. I've written a summary of key ideas you can take away in the episode notes on the blog and podcast section of our Brightspot fundraising website. I'd be immensely grateful if you could spare a moment or two to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, as that really helps other people to find and benefit from the podcast. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. I really appreciate the effort it takes to keep on honing your skills and to keep your inspiration levels topped up. Until the next time, best of luck with your fundraising. Goodbye.